Welcome to The Human Advantage, a Centre for Army Leadership podcast. I'm Major David Love from the Centre for Army Leadership, and I'll be the host of today's episode with our guest, Leveson Wood. Lev is an award-winning photographer, author, and explorer, as well as being a major in the British Army Reserves. While being best known for his televised exploits of walking the length of the River Nile, the Himalayas, and the Americas, he also served five years as a regular British Army officer with the Parachute Regiment between 2005 and 2010, where he deployed on operations to Afghanistan, and is also the author of over 10 books. Leveson, I know you've been incredibly busy recently, so firstly, thank you for taking the time to speak to us on today's episode. My pleasure, thanks for having me on. Was this adventurous lifestyle something that you always imagined you would do? What were those big influences in your life growing up as a as a young Leveson Wood? Sure. Uh, well, I think there is an element of perhaps never growing up to it all. Um, I was the son of two teachers who encouraged me to be curious, although my, my dad was actually a reservist soldier himself. Um, so I kind of grew up with the, the military mindset from a very young age. But I think some of my earliest inspirations, uh, the people around me, um, led me to want to do what I'm doing now. You know, my grandfather, he was a soldier in the Second World War. He fought in the Burma campaign. So I grew up with his stories of what it was like fighting in the Far East, as well as my dad's stories of uh, what it was like to be based in Germany with the threat of, you know, the Cold War looming. So there was an element of that soldierly spirit, I suppose, from a very early age. Um, but also, I grew up with a fascination for history, for storytelling, reading. I was a, I was always a very passionate sort of reader, and I was just fascinated by stories of faraway lands, I suppose, because growing up in, you know, pretty humble uh, surroundings in Stoke-on-Trent, I was very eager to learn more about the world. And I remember my dad reading me stories from Greek mythology, you know, the Odyssey when I was 10 or 11, encountering Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and things like that. And, uh, and, and I have to say, it was those sorts of stories, as well as probably a bit, bit too much Indiana Jones at Christmas, perhaps, that made me want to go and explore the world. And I suppose that never really left me. So like a real geek, I made my plan when I was about 12, 13, how I was going to do it. And I knew that the army was a part of that process. I was a sort of army bomby teenager. Um, I didn't do cadets, but I did my Duke of Edinburgh's award. And I did quite a few what used to be called look at life days where you go and spend a, a day or two with a regiment. I remember going, going along to see the Staffords when I was about 15. And then my whole later education, you know, going to university was geared towards going to Sandhurst. So I joined the officer training corps, you know, when I was 18, 19. And that was really my first uh, experience of army life, so to speak, albeit, <laughs> albeit from a, a student's perspective. But yeah, everything really was geared to what I'm doing now. And then, you know, joining the army, going to Sandhurst uh, really was, was kind of almost like a stepping stone. I knew that I was going to explore the world. But yeah, the army and travel have been the two main parts of my identity. Do you think there is something about you or your personality that simply attracts you to the constant need to find the next adventure or next adrenaline rush? 
I'm not sure it's an adrenaline rush. I've never been a, an adrenaline junkie. I mean, I used to hate jumping out of planes, even though I was in the paras. It wasn't something I particularly enjoyed. Um, I've done a bungee jump twice and hated every second of that. It's. Um, I think I do have a, a lust for adventure. I think there's a you know there's a, there's a part of me, as I'm sure there is with the vast majority of British soldiers, that does yearn for adventure. I think it's deep within our warrior spirit, within our DNA, as part of who we are. And I think as, as human beings, there's always going to be a certain number of us that, that want to look beyond the next horizon. I think, you know, I'm certainly one of them. I think there's a curiosity to sort of learn more about the world beyond which we already know. We have to accept there is always risks in everything that we do, but I'd rather run the risks that I do than the reverse and, and, and sort of uh, being bored to death with routine. You spent five years in the British Army as a commissioned officer with the Parachute Regiment between 2005 and 2010, deploying to Afghanistan in, in 2008, and no doubt many other places around the world during that time. But what was it about the army that you found particularly appealing? When I was a teenager, I did look at all the options, look at the RAF and, and the Navy. Well, I think it was probably just wanted to follow in my dad's footsteps and my granddad's footsteps um, and being an infantry officer really was was what I aspired to do so originally it was you're only allowed to apply for one infantry regiment so um, I think I'd applied for Staffords and then I thought my other option could be the intelligence corps anyway I'll never forget I, I did some boxing at Sandhurst and um, yeah I don't know if you remember the sort of boxing club where you wake up at four o'clock to get thrashed for 14 weeks and uh, at the end of it I did this fight, I, I happened to win, but that wasn't the point. It was at the end, the parachute regiment rep at Sandhurst at the time came up to me and said, who are you joining? And I said, I'm looking at the staffers and the ink He said, why not the paras? And I honestly said, well, I didn't think I was good enough. You know, I was, I was sort of middle third in fitness. I thought I was generally an average soldier. And he said, you know, if you've got the kahunas to stand in that ring and, and square off and, and fight in front of 2,000 people watching, then you good enough for the Paris? I thought, well, okay. Um, he said, right, I'm going to interview you right now. So I sat there with my pie and said, he started quizzing me on all sorts of things. And uh, he said, okay, you've, 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 passed, uh, you've passed the first phase. And said, right, interview number two, 6 a.m. the next day, to write an essay on nuclear proliferation in Iran, which I did. I said, I'm not very hungover. I wrote this essay and somehow got, got through to the final board and, and, you know, the rest is sort of history. Um, but it goes to show, you know, take these opportunities when they come along. And I did, thankfully, and that one moment probably changed my entire trajectory because if I hadn't joined the powers, I probably wouldn't have had the, I suppose, the, the courage to do a lot of things that came next. And also it opened a lot of doors for me. You touch on a particular moment that's changed your direction. Irrespective of whether you're a commissioned officer going through Sandhurst or whether you're a new entrant going through basic training, Training is probably the first time we get exposed to the idea of leadership and directly interacting with other leaders. Reflecting back on your time in training, what, if anything, from that process can you remember, whether that was a particular role model or experience that resonated or stuck with you that you then took forward through your army career and beyond? I think probably uh, when you go to Sandhurst, they, they teach you the that's a big important lesson about leadership, which are all very valid. And you read all about Montgomery standing on his Land Rover, addressing his men. And, and you sort of have these ideas when you go to take over your, your platoon, don't you, I suppose. But then you get that in reality somewhat different. I'll never forget when I first turned up in front of my platoon, I think half of them were, were missing. 
you know, they've been out the night before. Um, they just got back from Afghanistan, actually. So they were they were just they just returned from their uh, post-tour leave. And you know, I was the young green officer straight out of uh, sausage factory, and and I, I was given a platoon of thirty veterans. This was back in two thousand and six, you know, and it was the first really punchy fighting tour in Afghanistan. So. That was a very intimidating experience. I'll never forget my my corporal's uh, corporal Crabtree. Is this this is my introduction to the platoon? Is he got he got whichever blokes that decided to turn up from you know to stand by the bed. So he's like, sir, can I ask you a question? Is that how many um, sanging vets does it take to change a light bulb? I was like, I don't know, corporal Crabtree. Like, of course you don't. F in there, you weren't F in there. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that for me was like a sort of real eye opener. It's like just because you've being through that sausage factory, you know, because you've had that all those lessons doesn't mean you're in a position of authority yet. You've really got to prove yourself, and uh, and that really encouraged me to be humble, I suppose. And you've got to you, you earn that respect, you know. You, you, of course, people will, they will call you sir, as but doesn't mean they respect you yet. And I think that really comes with time. You've got to earn that trust. And I think the way that I did that was was trying to just yeah learn from those that had been before, learn from. Learn from everyone around you, giving everyone a voice. Um, I, I, this is something I learned from watching Sharp when I was about 15, actually. <laughs> um, it's a very important lesson in leadership, which is even if you already know the answer, I still ask the question because it gives everybody the opportunity to chip in in a team. And I think that's a really important lesson. Um, and I did that with my with my books. Like, right, who's got an idea how we can do this? Even though I knew what I was going to do anyway, I'd still let them all chip in. And one of them came up with the answer that I wanted. Let them take the glory because it inspires them to be communicative. It inspires them to feel part of the team and have ownership. And I think that really, for me, is the sort of essence of my style of leadership was, was just encouraging everyone to, to be a part of an effective team. You recently wrote a book, which was your 2021 book, The Art of Exploration, yeah. uh, Lessons in Curiosity, Leadership and Getting Things Done. And you cover a range of topics that within the Centre of Army Leadership, we know are absolutely fundamental to being an effective leader, such as knowing yourself, I think it's a really important one, uh, being curious, leading from the front, and building teams, which you just touched on there. How much of the way you think about leadership today was shaped from your time and experiences in the army, and particularly drawing on your time on operations in Afghanistan? Yeah, I mean, hugely. I, I think that the lessons that you learn when you are thrown in the deep end, as you often are as a young platoon commander, uh, or a leader at any level, really, in, in the military, stay with you for life because there is no better training ground for leadership. And I really believe that. And so a lot of the things that I practice now, it's the same structure, it's the same lessons, it's the same um, framework for leadership, which I apply on expedition or the way I've structured my teams. It's all, it's all stuff that really I learned in the army, um, particularly on, on operations. And I think that is... Uh, for me, you know, Afghanistan, it was a place that I refined the way I think about teams and leadership because I'd had, I'd had the fortune. I wasn't straight into Afghanistan. I, I left Sandhurst, I went to Brecon, and then we had about a year or maybe even 18 months of, of uh, you know, training before going back out there. 
Um, and everyone was chomping the bits to get to get out of Afghanistan, as you can imagine. There was a lot of turnover within the platoon, which meant that actually by the time we got back out there, most of the guys that had been out on the previous tour had moved on to other jobs. So I was suddenly the grown-up in the room. So after going from being quite intimidated, as you know, I'm suddenly a platoon commander in charge of a load of war veterans. Actually, by the time we deployed 18 months later, Apart from my junior NCOs and my platoon sergeant, nobody had actually been there before. So that gave me, in many ways, a, a sense of confidence that I had been through the training. I had to trust the training and trust the process that all the stuff that you've learned will, in actual fact, be useful. And when you get on the ground, actually, it turns out it is exactly like it, it is in, in the training. It's just like being an exercise, except, you know, the, the bangs are real. Lev, no doubt you experienced a lot during your time in Afghanistan. And I know operations in 2008 were defined by some pretty intense fighting in the upper Sangin Valley in Helmand uh, and against a pretty relentless Taliban during that time. Um, thinking back on that period, if, if you're comfortable talking about it, what was the most challenging day or event for you on either a, a personal or professional level? Sure. Well, I'll talk about one in Nalgan, place of Nalgan in the Dab Valley, um, just not far out of, out of Kandahar, if, if I know. We've been sent in to go and capture a notorious Taliban bomb maker named Haji Mohammed. And we'd, we'd flown in on, on some Chinooks. And the end that we got was, you know, this guy was going to be in his, uh, in his sort of house making bombs. Uh, and it was all going to be easy. We'd, we'd turn up, we'd arrest him, we'd fly off and get back to Kandahar Air Base in time for tea. Uh, of course, it didn't really work out like that. We sort of flew out, we landed quite close to the target, but not close enough to make sure that the guy was actually still there. <laughs> so obviously, when, when the ships came in, um, the, the target in question must have heard the helicopters from quite some, some distance away and done a runner with, with the rest of his family. So when we actually got to the compound in question, no one was home. There was plenty of evidence for you know, a little bit of small-scale IED making, uh, but really there was nothing, nothing to be found. So um, initially a sort of disappointment, I suppose, because everyone was geared up. It was the first real raid mission that we'd, we'd gone on as a platoon, as a company. My platoon had been given the task of going into the actual house itself and making the arrest. So to, to the face of just an empty house, you know, everyone was, everyone was quite disappointed but you know we count our blessings because i suppose that the, the quote of the day was be careful what you wish for because we had heard of course of all the tragic things that, that had gone before on, on the previous tour and uh i suppose you know having having my my blokes many of which were quite young and, and new to it I, I, was, I was very protective and so we didn't want to take any unnecessary risks but at the same time we wanted to go and get the job done so anyway just as we were thinking okay We'll go home now, get back in the helicopters. We then came in contact from uh, from the north, from a you know a typical sort of bun line, uh, three hundred meters away. It was almost you know written by the by the exercising staff. It sort of couldn't have been more like an exercise in many ways. So everyone knew what we we had to do to provide some covering fire and uh, 
bring in some mortars and, and that was all fine. But it, it was quite clear that the people who had been in the house had uh, had sort of withdrawn to uh, a nearby village and then started to engage us from there. So we were then given the task of crossing this this open field and, and basically going in full chase of the of the Taliban. So as we were as we were patrolling through this village, you know, you know the sort of typical very narrow alleyways with the irrigation ditches either side. We were going to this village, and uh, that was where we had a very close call. Actually, we were sort of—I uh, was super commander. I was behind the, the lead section, and just as we were patrolling down this alleyway, I saw some movement just over a wall, maybe five or eight meters ahead of the point man. Um, and it was indeed a Taliban had literally popped his head up, and it's very surreal to see, you know, face to face the the enemy, I suppose, and uh, he popped his head over the wall and just sprayed an entire magazine um, straight at the whole at the whole platoon. And we were in a very narrow and closed space. Um, by an absolute miracle, no one got hit. We did all, of course, dive into irrigation ditches either side of the, the track. Um, and that was clearly the, the, the Taliban's plan because when I looked down, there was a mine right between my feet. And uh, everyone looked down and there was lots of mines in those ditches. So it was clearly an ambush. But luckily, nobody got hurt, and, and that that was a, was an absolute miracle that we we kind of got away with that. One. But it did really ram home that message that this is real. This is not just an exercise. It wasn't you know you got to really take it seriously. And I think from that moment on, it, it really changed people's minds as to actually this is this is serious. We you know we could get into into serious trouble if anyone had a thought, a thought wrong an inch left or right. Then then that would have been a very different story. So that, that was one particular day. Another, another one really stretched my own leadership in, in some ways. We'd been told of uh, one of our own vehicles, a Wimmick, had been involved in a mine strike on a plateau. And, um, and my team was sent to go and you know, extract the casualties and uh, see what was going on. So about a mile away from where we were based, we drove up to uh, this sort of escarpment over the green zone. And there on the plateau, there was a, a Wimmick blown up. And I think there's was, was four guys or three guys who've been blown clear of the vehicle. Um, I think one had injured his back, but they were all alive. They were all, you know, thankfully in, in pretty good shape, given the fact they'd been involved in this, this mine. So as you're supposed to in the situation, we got our uh, guys with the, with the metal detectors to go forward and bring the guys back to our vehicle. And... Uh, as we were driving out of the minefield, um, we basically had to do a three-point turn to get out and try and get back onto our, our original tracks. And the same, uh, the same three or four guys that had been involved in the first explosion found themselves somehow in the point vehicle. So as they were driving out, I was in the second vehicle. Guess what happened? Big bang. They'd been involved in the second uh, mine strike within literally half an hour. Thankfully, you know, they, they've been blown clear of the second vehicle and they were all right again. Um, a total miracle, very, very lucky. And at this stage, it would have been very difficult to get the, the guys with the metal detectors to the front to, to, to clear. So I had to make quite a difficult decision with Officer Son. We're going to go and get these guys ourselves because, um, you know, I think the, the heart of leadership is never ask somebody within your command to do something you're not prepared to do yourself. And um, so, yeah, we went forward. With the aid of a bayonet, having the ground in front to, to bring you know the first two soldiers who've been injured, all thankfully lightly, to to our vehicle, and, and that's, that was a that was a tricky day because you know 
everyone was very shook up because that could have been anyone. And then to really round it off, when we all got back to our harbour a mile away, my, uh, I think it was CO's orders, um, he said, right, all platoon commanders in for a, for a debrief. And then to sergeant had to take our Vikings back out to go deny the vehicles, as in, you know, chuck some explosives in there, blow them up so the Taliban couldn't uh, nick the radios and things like that. So off they went, and my vehicle was leading. I was back in camp, and then 20 minutes later, I just saw this big explosion on the horizon, exactly where they'd been. And it was my vehicle. Um, the driver was fine, but my commander seat, where I would have been sitting, if I'd have out and hadn't been called in for orders, was completely mangled. So I count my lucky stars that by a twist of fate, I've been kept back for, for orders. <laughs> you know, it was a very lucky O group for me. So, uh, but you know, we were very, very lucky. I didn't lose any guys on that tour. Nobody got seriously injured. So, you know, I just count my lucky stars that it, it was all all okay. But I learned some very valuable, serious lessons on that tour about showing that you can lead from the front, lead by example, setting a good example, having very high standards, not let, letting standards slip. Uh, in terms of skills and drills and discipline, because um, that's when you uh, come a cropper. It really resonates with what does it mean to be a servant leader and to serve to lead? And actually, I think it's those examples that you've just raised there where you wouldn't ask someone to do something that you weren't prepared to do. And a lot of the things that we look at around the topic of leadership revolves around the building of trust. So how valuable do you think that process was in setting the conditions to build the team around you in respect to the trust? Hugely. I, I think those early experiences in the first few weeks of the tour really set the, the groundwork for an effective team. The team bonded as a result. The, the fact that we'd all come out of it alive in one piece helped. You know, morale hadn't been completely zapped. Um, morale is, is such an important part, I think, of leadership. You can't have fun all the time, but you should have fun quite a lot of the time. Um, and I think it's not about being frivolous and flippant or lighthearted when there's serious work to be done. It's about making sure people aren't messed around when they don't need to be messed around. It's not about giving people pointless tasks. It's about making sure that people can see the value in everything that they do and enjoy it. Because if they're enjoying it, they're going to give you a lot more back. They're going to respect you more as a leader. They're not, they don't think they're getting you know, messed around. So for me, I, I just try to make the whole experience I hesitate to say the word fun, but yeah, fun and, and enjoyable because um, it can be. You know, even in the most trying scenarios, you can still make sure that people don't feel as though they're wasting their time. And uh, I suppose what I'm trying to say is that the team that I built, the team that I had at the end of the tour, uh, was one that I think they can all—they're all welcome to chip in if they if they disagree. But you know, the feedback I got was they had a good tour, that they enjoyed having me as a leader, I think I'd handed over in good order to that soon kind of. Looking back on that experience now, I guess you can't help but feel that those experiences, near misses, the challenging situations changed your outlook, your appreciation of risk, how you might deal with crises. Is that a strength you find yourself drawing on? I think so. I think it's given me a healthy appreciation of what risk means. Just because you hear something, you see something in the news, it doesn't mean necessarily that it's dangerous or risky. You know, I sort of made a career, I suppose, out of going to places that most people wouldn't dream of going or want to go, frankly. But 
And that's based on a, on a healthy understanding, I think, of, of risk. Uh, probably a slightly higher risk tolerance than many, but it's not done in any recklessness. It, it's done through lots of risk assessments, um, a lot of paperwork, and, uh, and also based on my own experiences. And I sort of use that to both my advantage and also for, for helping others to appreciate a bit more risk. You know, when I left the army, I set up a, um, an expedition company where we were literally taking people on military-style expeditions to the most remote parts of the world. And we went horse riding across northern Afghanistan. We took people trekking on the Iran-Iraq border, uh, whitewater rafting through South Sudan, you know. And, and all of that was based on the lessons that I'd learned in the army, especially the leadership element. And that, you know, the words of my old two sergeants, civvies would pay thousands for this. It turns out they did. The point I'm trying to make is that, yeah, all those lessons that I learned um, about leadership, about teamwork, about setting good example, all came in incredibly handy later on and, and to set me up with what I'm doing now. It's funny you mentioned that because following your antics on TV, your line of work seems to be particularly injury prone. Just a few examples. You've survived some exceptionally close encounters with tigers and crocodiles. Uh, you've contracted malaria, dengue fever. Uh, and even this year, you managed to contract an exceptionally rare and, and deadly lung infection while traveling. Tell me about that. I mean, that was actually pretty serious, wasn't it? Turns out it was. I thought it was COVID. In fact, it, uh, I, I did have COVID at the same time. It was just I managed to get this bat disease. Um, I've been hazing in Mexico. And yeah, breathed in some of the fungus that grows on bat excrement. So when I started feeling ill, it, this was obviously prime COVID time. I presumed it was that. And I had got COVID and ended up in hospital. And then they thought, okay, you've got COVID with pneumonia. Um, turns out it was very rare bat lung fungus. And uh, so yeah, I ended up in, ended up in hospital for, for about a week uh, where I was uh, sort of nuked with antifungals. But yeah, I've, I've been... I suppose I've been unlucky in some respect, but actually very lucky in many others that I've always come out of it in feeling good health. Um, I suppose it's an occupational hazard. I spent a lot of my time traveling. You know, I broke one leg two years ago doing paramotoring in the Middle East. Um, I recently broke my other leg uh, on a motorcycle. I know a lot of people following you would have also seen you had a pretty horrific car crash in Nepal yes. uh, while filming for walking the Himalayas. Was that the closest you think you've come to not, yeah. not making it home? And ex explain what happened. It's just you exploring the world. The dangerous things are getting chased by lions and uh, eaten by crocodiles. But actually, it's, it's the more banal day-to-day -day things. Road traffic accidents are always going to be the most dangerous thing that you encounter. And for me, that's, that has been the case. And the closest I've come to death was, yeah, I was in a taxi in Nepal back in 2015. Uh, the brakes failed in this car, and it went off the edge of a cliff with, with me and a few others in it. So... Very lucky to survive that with with just a you know broken arm, a few broken ribs. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, here I, am. I think I've used up all of my nine lives now. Leveson, there's another area I just wanted to ask you about, which is you visited Ukraine earlier this year following the initial stages of the Russian invasion to record a, a feature for Channel Four. Mm. And I know you've also written several columns about your, your time there. Can you tell us a, a little bit about that experience? Sure. Um, so I was there in the, well, the second week of the war, first week of March. And uh, it was a very harrowing experience in many ways. Uh, very surreal as well, you know, having seen lots of war zones, not just Afghanistan, but I've been to Iraq and Somalia and Syria and Yemen, um, tend to be low-level counterinsurgencies where 
you kind of know what you're up against and you generally are on the sort of the winning side. But at this stage in the war, you know, very surreal to go to a European capital, get on a train from Krakow where people were having stag dues and then cross the border into a war zone. And the first thing I saw was the churches, the statues of Lviv, which is often a popular tourist destination, being covered in sandbags, anticipating Russian missiles. And then going on to Kiev, where the city had been almost depopulated, all the women and children had left. And then to be subject to uh, air raid sirens every night. And then literally to get the, the, the missiles coming in, you could hear them thudding in. And that was that was very shocking, very surreal to think here we are in Europe mm. uh, and you've got Russian missiles raining down. It's not a scenario that we ever thought would happen. It's the scenario we all train for, I suppose. You know, it's the sort of two blokes in a trench with a BMP behind it. That's exactly what's happening. But yeah, you know, I was, I was fortunate to meet a lot of Ukrainian soldiers, but most of them weren't professional soldiers. Most of them were militia. Some of them had served since 2014 in the, in the Donbass, but a lot of them were just protecting their own villages and they literally digging trenches in their own gardens, making scarecrows and putting a helmet on it. It, it felt very reminiscent of what you imagine World War II to be. You know, there's old tank traps in the road, anti-tank mines, you know, going going through the ditches on the on either side of the road, uh, dummies um, in many ways. It, it, was, it was a very, very odd thing to, to bear witness to. Um, and we, we got right up to the front lines and uh, within about four or 500 metres of, of the Russian positions, right to that final Ukrainian checkpoint. And, and, and yeah, to, to see that firsthand was 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 an eye I presume you did then get the opportunity to chat with, with quite a lot of members of the Ukrainian armed yeah. forces. You know, the situation they found themselves in was was a, was a pretty strong motivator. Was there a particular approach to maybe leadership or things that resonated with you from your understanding and your experiences, or different approaches? You know, they're they're in quite an extreme situation. Therefore, you're really seeing this play out in real time. Yeah, I, I think from what I saw, two things that, that struck me was Zelensky putting this order out that no Ukrainian fighting gate male can leave the country. I mean, that was a stroke of genius from start. You know, one I don't think many would would have left because it was their homeland under under attack. But the fact that they weren't allowed meant that everyone had to fight. You know, and I saw that going into the country. The trains were packed with women and children, but the, the, the soldiers on the trains made sure no men were leaving. And, and I suppose when those that would have wanted to leave realised they couldn't, everyone just said, OK, we're in the army now, we're going to fight. And that was it. And, and then the whole nation's mindset was changed. Everyone realised they were in it. They, there was no escape. And I think that was, a, that was a really powerful and quite very bold leadership move by, by Zelensky, but clearly very effective. Um, I think the other thing that sprung to mind was in terms of information operations and winning that war, which I think the Ukrainians have done very, a very good job at, is winning the narrative. Um, and I think for us in peacetime, it's very difficult to get the sign-off for certain messages to go out, and that's that often hampers winning the narrative. It often is hamstrung by the fact that the, there is a lot of bureaucracy involved, and understandably so. But in Ukraine, everyone's encouraged to have social media accounts. Everyone's encouraged to be seen as the good guys by making TikToks and Instagram videos and saving cats and all that sort of stuff and putting it out there in real time and, and keeping that flow of uh, the good guy narrative going. And that's that's clearly been very effective. Um, and and th- things like the, you know, the FU Russian warship campaign that's now on all of the Ukrainian stamps. I mean, again, a stroke of 
comedy genius. I mean, it helps that Zelensky used to be a comedian to sign off on these things. But they've all they've all helped to engender a sense of you know Ukraine being the the underdog who is in the right, and they are. Um, but I think that that does need to be reinforced by an infoops campaign. I, I think they've done really well, and and they've got dedicated units that that do all of this, and they'll go around and they'll put graffiti on on the walls, um, you know, and, and things like that. So, you know, I, I was struck by those two things that have really helped Ukraine to be really effective in undermining Russian morale. It doesn't help that you know the Russians didn't cover themselves in any sort of glory, and their logistics and supply chains were completely useless. And that was seen by the way they all just came to a complete standstill uh, on the second week. I know you've been following this quite closely. Um, did you note differences between how the Ukrainian armed forces seem to adapt far more rapidly to the evolving change and the situation that they face compared to potentially the the Russians? And, and that seems to have played out certainly in the media and, and what we've all witnessed back here. I think the key thing really is you, you do have the advantage being the, the defender and having the moral high ground as well. And I think the Ukrainians done a very good job of maintaining that moral high ground, whereas the Russians have lost that immediately with, with their war crimes. So that, for me, comes down to a bit of discipline. Um, against the odds, in fact, because bear in mind that most of the Ukrainians fighting are not professional soldiers. They are simply people who've been given a uniform dug out there, you know, a, a gun from the attic and off they go. And, and I saw that myself. You know, thankfully, the, the resupply and the support did come from the West, but not until a few weeks later. So when I, when I was there, it was literally people digging out their old hunting rifles or the World War II um, Enfields that they'd been given by their grandfather and something like that. So um, it was quite inspiring to see what they were up to, you know, making their own, they don't call them Molotov cocktails there, because um, Molotov was a Russian. I call them uh, Banderas uh, smoothie. <laughs> um, but, but the point is that, yeah, I think that when you're defending your homeland and you, you know that you're in the right, then that certainly helps. I think we, we covered before that that survival instinct is a powerful motivator. Well, it's it's a uh, total war for the Ukrainians. It's, you know, if they don't defend their homeland, then they lose it. It's, it's that simple. So it's, it's a big motivator. Levison. I am conscious that uh, we are rapidly drawing to a close, but I'd really like to finish on some quickfire questions mm. with you, if I may. What is the most important leadership lesson that you've learned? Uh, be humble and listen to your team. And who is the most inspirational leader from history? Adrian Carson de Viet. Come and read his uh, Wikipedia yeah. century. Uh, Lieutenant General Sir Adrian Paul Gislaine Carson de Beers, BC, was a British Army officer born of Belgian and Irish descent. Uh, he was awarded the Victoria Cross, the highest military decoration awarded for valour. He served in the Boer War, the First World War, and the Second World War. He was shot in the face, head, stomach, ankle, leg, hip, and ear, was blinded in his left eye, survived two plane crashes, tunneled out of a prisoner of war camp, and tore off his own fingers when a doctor declined to amputate them. Describing his experiences in the First World War, he wrote, frankly, I enjoyed the war. Absolute legend. <laughs> I think that's probably the most interesting answer we've ever had on, uh, on our podcasts. Um, something a bit more closer to home. The most interesting person that you've actually worked with? I mean, I met lots of very interesting people. I mean, I, I actually met the Dalai Lama and interviewed Dalai Lama. Mm -hmm. He was an absolutely fascinating character, actually, and uh, lots of insightful words of wisdom that I picked up from him. 
the best photograph you've ever taken? Um, I was in South Sudan in 2014 when I was doing my Nile journey and took a, a photograph of the Mundari tribe, which was one of those beautiful scenes I've ever, uh, ever seen. It was just magnificent. A very remote part of the world that I'd always wanted to get to. And so huge privilege to finally make it there and get the ultimate picture, in my opinion. And can you recommend a book that everybody should read and it can't be one of your own, unfortunately? I think The Alchemist by Paolo Coelho, um, just because it's such a compelling narrative and it, it teaches us a lot about human psychology, about what motivates us and, and drives us. And it's a very inspiring book based on uh, Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey, which is um, basically the basis for every adventure story ever told. So for those that don't know about The Hero's Journey, or also known as the monomyth, it's worth Googling it and, and finding out a bit more because it's very useful, whether you're involved in a creative project, giving a talk, wherever it might be. It's a very good tool for your handbook. If you're going to go and do a good PowerPoint presentation for your next uh, next job, then uh, have a look at the, the Hero's Journey and structure it around that. And the last question, out of all the countries you have visited in your life, What's been your favourite? Very tough one. Uh, I always go back to Nepal. I always love, I love the Himalayas. I love the people and the mountains. So I'll, I'll go with Nepal. Excellent. And talking about next adventures, what have you got in the pipeline? What's coming up these days that you're working on, if you're allowed to tell us? Yeah, I can tell you about one at least. Um, I've just finished a book about Afghanistan. It's called The Escape from Kabul. Uh, which is all about Operation Pitting and the, the Kabul airlift. That's told from not just soldiers' perspectives, but also many civilians, Afghans. And yeah, that in itself has been very inspiring to hear, hear people's stories. But lots of TV adventures in the pipeline as well. Um, yeah, we've been very busy. What's, what's going on? Leveson, thank you again for speaking with us today. Uh, you've offered a fascinating insight into what it takes to be a professional explorer, uh, broken limbs and all. And I'm really grateful for your openness and honesty and your accounts from your time in the army and operations in Afghanistan. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Human Advantage. What you hear on each episode are the views of the participants and do not represent the position of the Centre for Army Leadership, the Army, or the UK government. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can also find more about the Centre for Army Leadership, as well as a range of leadership resources on our website and social media channels.